Hi, and welcome to the Arana Hills Church of Christ podcast. We hope this message brings you closer to knowing God, finding freedom in Him, and understanding what He has in store for you and your community. To learn more about Arana Hills Church of Christ, head to aranahills.church. We hope you enjoy this message. All right, good evening, everybody. If you'd like to, like to follow an actual bottle, we're, we're going to start in the book of Colossians. If not, I've made some really easy to follow along slides. Thank you, um, the four of you, for, for doing that. That was, um, that was quite um, um, beautiful what you did up here, and so I really, uh, really appreciate it. Um, as always, uh, I do have a small table set up out there. Um, if you'd like any of our new resources, uh, please come uh, when this is over. If you would just go do so quickly, because we have to tear it back down and take it with us. So in the first five or ten minutes, if you just come um, out there and grab something, that's how we support our missions in the world and our charities. And um, we have three homes in China that look after children with um, mental disabilities, two in Hinyang, one in Changsha. We also have a rescue in Cape Town that gets people out of the sex industry, off drugs, high school educated, and job trained, so we can try to do our part um, in the Cape Flat. So you can uh, pick that, those things up out there. All right, so my job tonight is to open the Bible. And of course, you all knew that. That's, that's why we're here. And so um, I take that very seriously. So anytime you do that, you want to ask a couple questions. One, what happened? And two, more importantly, what's happening in me right now because of what happened? So I want to talk to you about a, it might be, it, it might be the most common word that, that is used in Christianity other than Jesus or God, right? So I want to use, I want to talk about, I want to talk about this probably maybe it's definitely in the top five most common used word. And I want to make, I want to build a, an imagination around it that, that hopefully will be profound for you because here's the thing. Words matter less than how we picture those words functioning. Words always matter less. It doesn't matter what word I say. It doesn't really matter. What matters is the picture I just created in your head, right? About how that functions. So even if I say God, well, that doesn't really matter. What matters is whatever your primary picture of God is. And if your primary picture is a single white dude on a throne, well, that's more Zeus, right? Or some giant projection of what we prefer. But if our primary image of God is revealed in the crucified, cruciform, canonic Christ, that's a whole nother thing. It's the same thing if I was to say Jesus. If we picture like blonde hair, blue-eyed, um, English-speaking Jesus, that creates one image. But if we picture more of a Middle Eastern guy that was standing up for the poor and the afflicted and, and choosing to lay his power down to submit his liberty to the higher ethic of love, well, that makes a whole nother different sort of thing. So, so there, But there's a way I could say something true that creates a not true imagination about something. And so I, I, could, t- I could say something that's obviously true, but, but the, the image it creates is not true. So if I was to say, um, Jesus is your judge, right? That's true, but I've asked this all over the world and um, you know, well into 99.9% of people, when I say Jesus is your judge, if I ask them, what do they picture? They tend to say, I picture some version of a heavenly courtroom where Jesus is this courtroom official, right? But the problem with that is, is that in Hebrew, the word judge is not a court- courtroom official. It's somebody anointed by God to set you free, right? And so, and we already knew that. There's an, there's an entire book in the Old Testament dedicated to the concept of the judges. And so the judges were not uh, courtroom officials declaring people guilty or not guilty. They were people anointed by God to set people free. So the problem with saying Jesus is your judge, for instance, and then we, we say, come on, press in, get close to Jesus. Well, no one, no mentally healthy person wants to be in court. No mentally healthy person wants to be in the presence of somebody bringing up everything they did wrong. Heck, we're, 
we're very flawed human beings, but most of us are kinder than every night before we go to bed. We sit down with someone we love and say, let me just list real quickly the things you disappointed me today with, right? And, and, if, and if somebody did that, that relationship wouldn't last very long unless both people were codependent and really, really unhealthy. But if we were to say, hey, Jesus is the, your judge, and what that means is, is that means that he's the one anointed by God to set you free. Um, now, you, you, let's, let's press into that, right? That's a whole different image. So there's a way to say a certain word, but the word matters less than how we picture that word functioning. And so tonight, the word I want to choose is salvation, saved. This is a word we hear all the time in Christianity, like, like the salvation has come to you. Or we could say it this way. Or sometimes we ask it as a question, like, are they saved? Are you saved? Hey, do you know you're saved? Like, so we, some version of that word gets used all the time. And here's the problem with that word. It's the problem with every word. And that is that word doesn't matter. What matters is the primary picture that word creates. And so for most of us, we have one primary image of the word salvation, and that is someday I get to go somewhere else, right? So the idea is, is that I'm saved. Well, what does that mean? Well, that means that I've been forgiven, and so one day I get to go somewhere else. So, so in some sense, salvation has been dumbed down to someday, someday, like someday no more pain, someday no more crying, someday the lion and the lamb. And yeah, let, let, let's embrace that and let's fully affirm that we here at Arana Hills Church of Christ we affirm that idea the problem isn't that idea the problem with that is that becomes the only idea and so I want to affirm that idea but I want to spend the entire evening tonight talking about another way to look at salvation so this is Colossians if you could bring that first uh, slide up for me this is a guy named Paul and he's he's trying He's trying to explain the meaning of the cross of Jesus Christ to people who really, they just didn't have any sort of concept of that. So here's, here, he's trying to explain uh, basically so, so what? So he says, uh, once you were dead in your sins and in the earned circumcision of your flesh, God has made you alive with Christ. So he, he forgave us all uh, our sins. Having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us, he took it away, nailing it to the cross. Let's just stop and let's think about that just for a second, because I want to give that a full 60 seconds of honor and, and yes and amen. And that is one of the meanings of the cross of Jesus Christ is that this idea that we owed God something got removed. It, it was, it was, it's actually more profound than Jesus died to fix a problem. It's more Jesus died to eradicate the idea there is a problem. Like, like there is, it's, 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 it's profound in, in, in a sense that you have owed God something. And now, even though you owed God, you no longer owe God. And so one of the things that, that, that Paul says here, think about it this way, that's in some way you were indebted and now you are no longer indebted. And we say, yes, amen. And we embrace that and affirm it. It's just not the one I want to talk about tonight. I want to talk about the next sentence. Check this out. Next slide. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them 
by the cross. So for Paul, there was this element of salvation that was someday, someday, forgiveness of sins, no indebtedness. You are perfectly fine with God. It's not that they're just, it's it's not even really that there was a problem that now it's fixed. It's like Jesus died to eradicate the idea that God ever felt a different way about you, like because everything Jesus did at the cross was true since before the foundation of the world. So it's not like God was grumpy and then he hurt somebody and now he's fundamentally better mooted. It's not, it's, it's not, that it's it's actually something more profound than that it is there is no indebtedness now and there never god had loved you since before the foundation of the world so there's that one aspect but then there's the second aspect that paul says not only is it someday evidently for paul salvation is here now today that something is oppressing you and god is not happy about that and so he is deciding to take that on, which leads me to the, as far as I know, the first mention of the idea of salvation in the whole Bible. Now, because this is Tuesday night and you're in church, I, I feel like I'm under no pressure to be an evangelist, right? Everybody here is a fully devoted follower of Jesus, right? So, so I'm assuming that the someday legal indebtedness part, everybody here is okay with. But I want to talk about the second one because I think it's more relevant to us tonight, and I want to expand the idea of salvation to something maybe even, if it's possible, even to make it more beautiful than, than it was before. Next, next slide. So this is Exodus chapter three. As far as I know, this is the first mention of the idea of, of salvation in this sense. So the Lord said, I've indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt, and I've heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I'm concerned about their suffering. So I'm gonna come down and rescue them. Right now, the word rescue there is the same root word we get the word salvation from. You could easily say, I've come down to save them. I've come down to deliver them. I've come down uh, to bring salvation to this situation. Now, in this context, salvation has nothing to do with someday and everything to do with somebody somewhere is treating you poorly and I am concerned about your suffering and I am determining to save you from it. So this isn't even, uh, now let's be clear, we embrace the forgiveness of sins, the canceling of the legal, we embrace all of that. But this other side of salvation, which I think needs more playtime is this isn't about the forgiveness of sins. This is, I love you just because I love you. And somebody somewhere is doing something to make your life unjust and hard and suffering. And I'm not happy with that. So I'm going to save you from that. So again, in one sense, salvation is about someday, but in this sense, it's about here now today. Now to understand this, I figured I could do something a bit deeper because it's Tuesday night and this is Arana Hills Church of Christ, right? So, so let's, let's, so this is something quickly for the Bible nerds amongst you, okay? So this, to understand this, we got to go back to Genesis, right? So AJ gave me a pretty good introduction there. He said, I'm, this is AJ's word, I'm four for four in in giving him something different and inspiring him. So four for four is pretty good. I'm going to go for five for five here, right? So so this is Genesis chapter two. Um, first opening sort of uh, story of origins in the scripture. It says, a, a river was watering the garden. It flowed from Eden, and from there it separated into four headwaters. Now, the name of the first was called Pishon, and it winds through the entire land of Havilah, where there's gold, and the gold is perfect. Hmm. Now, there's all these plays on words going on in this story. Next slide. So, so let's, let's, let's break down those words. So it says there's a river called Pishon, 
and it's winding through the entire land of Havilah. Now, Pishon is an odd word, right? Um, I, it's, it's, a, uh, it, it's, it's a word that you sort of have to see it in its pictures uh, to get the nuances in it. So every Hebrew letter is a picture. Every Hebrew word then is a comic strip. The comic strip on Pishon is, more, is, is something like something has been consumed to nothing, but then burst forth with multiplication. So, so it's like uh, there, there's something and then that something gets eaten down to nothing and then it explodes back with newness, right? It's that. So you could call that, um, the, 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 the best way I could explain it in today's metaphors would be think of an extinct volcano. So we thought that volcano was done with activity and suddenly it's rumbling with new life. You could call that surprise. Pishon is the root word for surprise, which by the way, is also the root word for resurrection, right? Which it, it, in, in the early Hebrew language, there was no word for resurrection. Why? Because you don't have words for things you've never seen, right? There was no words for airplanes, for rocket ships, for, 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 for uh, penicillin. There was no, why? Because they didn't, those things didn't exist yet. And so for, in their experience, dead people stay dead. And so when there's something called a resurrection, they really didn't have a word for that. So the earliest word for resurrection was surprise. And that sort of makes sense. Like if I die tonight and you came to my funeral and Friday, and then I showed up here on Sunday, surprise, sort of cuts it, right? It's like, oh, right, here we go, surprise. So, so you could call the word Pishon surprise. You could call it uh, resurrection. I think the easiest way to see it is hope. Like, like even when it appears something's dead, something can bust forth. Like, you never know what God might do to your today that fundamentally changes tomorrow. That your tomorrow is not a repeat of yesterday because th- there's surprise and there's resurrection and there's, there's hope. So we'll call that hope. So, so the writer in Genesis says there's a river called hope. Now, the Havilah word's a bit easier. That one's really simple. It's Havilah is suffering. So here's what the writer of Genesis says. There's a river called hope and it's winding through the entire land of suffering. In other words, if you're in the land of suffering, there's a river called hope flowing somewhere in it. You just got to go find it. And that's important, right? Because there's a lot of rivers in the, in the land of suffering. There's a river called give up, a river called sell out, a river called start over, a river called make matters worse, a river called compromise. You don't want those rivers. You want the river called hope. So the writer says, hey, there's this river called hope and it's winding through the entire land of suffering. And, and then he goes on to say, here's how you can know you found the river of hope. There's gold. And the gold isn't just normal gold, it's perfect gold. So in other words, if you find a river with gold in the riverbed, that you, you, know you, you know you have found it. Now, again, there's a play on words, and this is my four minutes for you Bible nerds, all right? So the word gold, just like Pishon, has pictures. And every Hebrew letter is a picture, every Hebrew word is a comic strip. The word gold is an eyeball. It's a person harvesting supply. So it's a three-letter word. First word letter is an eyeball. Second letter is a guy harvesting supply. And the third letter is a house or a house of God. So when the ancient Hebrew people read the word gold, they read, behold, the one who brings us substance for survival brings it to us in the house of God. So there's this play on words. There's this river called hope and it's winding through the entire land of suffering because the one who brings a substance for survival is bringing it to us in the house of God. But then there's another thing and this is just has to do with science. I had a scientist in Perth. I was preaching something like this and he got so moved and he took me to his lab and he did this for me. And he, he tried to explain it, but after about two minutes, it sounded like, uh-huh, right? Like I didn't know what was going on, but he was explaining why. He said, if you take one part of perfect gold and put it in 100,000 parts of water, all it takes is one billionth of a gram 
of perfect gold in 100,000 parts of water, and it creates a colloidal suspension, which to him, it mattered that I knew that. It doesn't dissolve. It creates a colloidal suspension. Evidently, those two things are different, right? And he says, if you take one part of gold and put it in 100,000 parts of water, it'll create a colloidal suspension that turns all the water blood red, right? And so he did this for me. He put it in a vial. It looked about like that. And so I used to, if I knew I was going to be preaching on this, I used to carry it around with me. And I'd stand at the door and welcome people. I'd say, hey, welcome. Good. Hey, you picked a good day. Come on in. And I would just wait. A a lot of people would say, why are you carrying your blood sample around? It looks exactly like when the doctor draws blood, it looks exactly like a blood sample. By the way, it's how they make stained glass. It's how they create a, a different sort of colors um, and because once you have red, evidently you could do a lot of things. So I want you to think about this, right? If the river called Hope, that's in the land of suffering, has perfect gold in the riverbed, what color would the what color would the water be? It would all be red, right? So if you put all that together, here's what you got. Next slide. There's a river called Hope, and it's winding through the entire land of suffering. Because behold, the one who brings us substance for survival brings it to us in the house of God through a river of blood. The idea is is that when you see water turning red, it is not an innocuous thing. In Jewish imagery, when water turns red, it means you might be in the land of suffering now, but hope is on the way. Hmm, fast forward to Egypt. I've indeed seen the suffering, the misery of my people in Egypt, and I've heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I'm concerned about their suffering. So I'm gonna come down and rescue them. Think through your Sunday school things, right? How does God get them out of Egypt? He gets them out through 10 plagues. What was the first plague? All the water turned to blood. Yeah, to the Egyptians, that was a curse, but to the Hebrew people, there would have been a buzz in the camp, like, hey, hey, all red water, all the water's turning red. Hope flows through suffering. Hope flows through suffering. Moses gets them out of Egypt, and what do they have to walk through? The red sea, red water. Hope flows through suffering. They get to the base of Mount Sinai. Moses disappears with no explanation. They don't know if he's ever coming back. They don't know if a mountain lion ate him. They don't know if God killed him. They don't know anything. He's up there. They start panicking because these tribal people are sort of surrounding them. And so they get all the gold and they mash it together and they make a big gold cow. Moses reappears and he loses the plot and he beats the gold cow into powder and he makes them throw the powder into the water coming out of the rock. Now, hang on. If you take the gold and put it in the water, what color would the water be? Red. And he makes them drink it for the remission of their sins. Hope flows through suffering. This is true even in creation. Um, I've never given birth, uh, nor nor have I ever seen anything like it. I've, I've never witnessed. I don't have any children. I, I understand it's a daunting thing. Like it's it's quite a heck of a thing to get a, to get a life from in here to out there is 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 quite a thing. And in I, everything I know about childbirth, I learned from TV, right? Which is a hundred percent facts. Everybody knows that, right? But here here's here's what seems to be wisdom is always in the consensus. You can always find one person that says it's not this way, or you could always find one doctor that says, hey, this is my opinion. But wisdom is always in the consensus of people and in in the consensus of women who have given birth uh, and, and what they show on TV it's it seems to go like this the woman is about ready to give birth and the first thing that happens is she'll like like oh she'll feel a contraction and then she'll say my water 
broke. And when her water breaks, she enters into a time of labor or suffering. And so in the labor, what two fluids mix together? Blood and water. So in the greatest suffering a woman might ever know, out comes a bundle of joy. When blood and water mix, hope is flowing through suffering. And evidently, the joy and the hope that the new life brings is so big that it overcomes the sheer suffering that was before it. How do I know that? Because women regularly sign up to have more than one child, right? Nobody, nobody signs up for more, more than one bout of kidney stones, but women regularly say, oh, no, I'll go through that again. The, the joy beats the suffering. You, you know, years later, there's this guy named Jesus, and... Um, People are sort of wondering what he's all about, you know. I mean, like, we have our tradition and our experience that informs us, right? You imagine living through that in real time, wondering, what's this guy all about? What's, What's going on with him? And one of the things that he does is he shows up at this wedding in Cana, and he performs his first miracle. And if you think through your scriptures, what was his first miracle? He turned all the water into yeah, like what was his point? To provide adult beverages for the party? No, no, I mean, that could have been part of it. But, that, but the, the bigger thing was, is he's talking to a group of people who are under Roman oppression and he turns all the water red, which was, a, it was a, a, a usurping sort of subversive sort of in your face confrontation to oppression without giving them any overt evidence for treason, right? This is like genius sort of stuff from this rabbi, right? Remember there's this one time, um, he's, uh, he shows up at the Feast of Tabernacles, right? And he, he stands up on the temple steps and says, I am the living water. At the exact moment that they would have been doing the wine and water ceremony where priests were pouring water and wine into the brazen altar until it overflows and then the wine and the water mixed and went down the temple steps in between the people. Jesus chooses that moment to say, I am the living water. In other words, the hope that's supposed to flow through suffering that the temple's been promising for years and failed to deliver, I am here to save the day. Hope flows through suffering. Years later, Jesus has a really bad day and he ends up on, he ends up on a cross, right? And, and if you think through your passion story, that's a really bad day. And if you think through your passion story, they don't want someone hanging around on Sabbath, right? Because that would have offended the Jews. So to make sure no one is hanging around on Sabbath, because the whole goal of crucifixion in Jerusalem was to avoid riots, right? So you don't want to do things that cause riots. And so what they do is they send a soldier over to just make sure everybody's dead and they stick, they stick a, a, a spear in Jesus' side, and it says out of his side came a steady flow of two things, blood and water. What is the author saying? Think like a Hebrew for a second. The author saying at the foot of the cross is not just the canceling of indebtedness. It's not just someday. It's a steady flow of hope for whatever suffering we're in here now, today. So in that sense, salvation is about someday, but it is also clearly about right here, right now, today. It's about finding what is oppressing someone and bringing salvation to their house. Now, once we, am I five for five yet? We're doing okay. So once you understand that and you go back and think through your Jesus stories, you start seeing it everywhere. Like there's this one time, Jesus has an encounter with a tax collector who's up a tree. And he says, hey, um, 
come on down, I'm gonna eat with you today. And the tax collector is so moved by the compassion of Jesus. He says, hey, here and now I'll give half of what I have to the poor. And what does Jesus say? That's it, salvation has come to this house, which leads to all kinds of questions like, is Jesus allowed to do that? Is Jesus allowed to proclaim someone saved because they were generous to the poor? And can you be saved by being generous to the poor? And if you can't get saved by being generous to the poor, what in the what, what on earth is Jesus talking about when it comes to proclaiming, is Jesus playing with this man's soul? What is going on here? But you gotta understand in the first century, what was the only way for Zacchaeus to be saved? Temple ritual, who's not allowed in the temple? tax collectors. And so what do you do when your job forbidded you entrance to the only place that was offering salvation? Jesus usurps the entire system of oppression and horror and suffering and injustice. And he sees the man's heart change. And he says, that's it. You've moved one millimeter towards me. I'm moving the rest of the way towards you. Salvation has come to your house. This is not just about Zacchaeus's someday. This is about Jesus engaging his chaos here, now, today, and doing an in-your-face confrontation to that oppression. There's, a, there's another story that's pretty similar, just with a different person. It says that Jesus went by a prostitute's house, which leads to all kinds of questions, like, is Jesus allowed to go to houses of prostitutions? And, and, and what was going on at the prostitute's house in the first century? That would be called business, so Jesus is between customers, which leads to all kinds of questions, like, would, you, would, would there be a worse place to ever run into Jesus, ever? You imagine, you imagine like, Jesus is in, like, Jesus is in, like, the front room, right? You imagine being the guy who just happened to be there just before Jesus, and like, he's like coming out and like, <laughs> oh, Jesus. Hey, man, I'm just, I, I was just here to use the toilet. And, and, and so there's all of, there's, there's, there's all of this stuff going on. And, and, and it says that the prostitute was so moved by Jesus's compassion. Not, I'm not even sure what he did except for extend love, right? And it says that she knelt down and washed his feet with her hair. And Jesus says, that's it. All your sins are now forgiven, which leads to all kinds of questions like, can you get saved by washing his feet with your hair? And, and for, all, for all my bald friends, I mean, that's really important. And so what do you, what, what do, you do? And, and what's going on there? Well, what's the only way for that lady to be saved in the first century? Temple ritual. Who's not allowed in the temple? Prostitutes. So what does Jesus do? He circumvents the entire oppressive system of horrible power and he sees that lady's heart change and he says, you meet me one millimeter, I'm meeting you the rest of the way. Today, your sins are now forgiven. To a lady that had no means to have her sins forgiven, to have her sins forgiven in that way was an in your face. So in that sense, it wasn't just about someday. It was about Jesus engaging her here, now, today, identifying what oppresses her and setting her free. There's this one chaotic scene where Jesus is preaching in a full house. And um, I can't even picture this actually. I, I, I've been to Jerusalem and I've been to the house where they think this happened. Of course, they're guessing, but it, it, honestly, it, it, it just, I don't care. How good of a communicator do you have to be to handle any form of chaos? Like 10 minutes ago, there was an ambulance siren and, and I almost lost the room. Half the room was like, wait, right? And, and so it's very difficult. And it says something weird. It says a paralyzed guy could not get into the house. So his friends took him to a roof, cut a hole in the roof and then dropped him down. This is chaotic, right? I, I, like if a bird flew in here right now, there is nothing I could do to maintain the room. You imagine if someone repels from the ceiling, that would just be... 
unbelievable. And so he repels the, uh, the paralyzed guy, and it says something so confronting. It says, and Jesus saw the faith of his friends and proclaimed his sins forgiven, which leads to all kinds of questions like, is Jesus allowed to do that? And can you get saved because someone else is believing for you? And if you can't, is Jesus playing games with this guy? And what's going on here? We understand that in the first century, what was the only way for that man to be saved? Temple ritual. Who's not allowed in the temple? paralyzed people. Jesus sees the entire oppressive system holding this man down. This man has been beaten half to death by life, and Jesus sees him, and he takes compassion, and he says, that's it. All your sins are now forgiven. Salvation has come to this house. Why? Because Jesus isn't just concerned with someday. Jesus, the God revealed in Christ, is concerned with engaging our chaos here, now, today, and confronting whatever is oppressing us. But perhaps the, the best story of Jesus around this topic um, was, frankly, my least favorite story. Um, I've never preached on it ever um, until fairly recently when I learned some stuff about it. I Actually, I've never heard a pastor preach on it. It's one of those things in the Jesus stories that we all just sort of hope no one notices, right? As a matter of fact, there's one edition of the NIV that at the bottom of John chapter 5, it puts an asterisk and says, we're not sure this should be in the Bible. We, like, it's, it's like, it is, it is, it's a, it's very small print, but they're like, we don't know what to do with the story. It's, it's frankly an awful story. And uh, unless you know the history, which I'll explain in a second, but um, it, it's a story you'll be familiar with though, because all of us have cringed at this story, hopefully, uh, hopefully, if you've read the story, you had a little thought like, oh, no. And, and it's a story about a pool called Bethesda, right? And, and uh, essentially, it's all in John chapter 5. You can go read it later. I, I will tell it well. And basically, it says, just inside the Sheep Gate in Jerusalem, um, there's a pool called Bethesda. And occasionally, an angel would stir the water of the pool, and only one, the first person in would get healed and no one else. Is anybody okay with that? Like, that makes God sound like a lunatic. This is what that makes God sound like. The God's up in heaven. There's not enough problems to deal with. So he's like bored. So he's like, I'm so bored. Give me an angel over here. So the angel comes over. He says, hey, you see that water? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Now, only when I tell you, and I mean only when I tell you, I want you to go down and stir that water, right? And this is what we're going to do. The first sick person that gets in, we're going to heal them completely. And no one else is going to get healed. And what we'll do is we'll successfully create a race amongst the afflicted because nothing gets my God heart beating like a bunch of crippled people trying to move fast. This is going to be awesome. And there's like some bookie in heaven going 20 to an 80, 20 to an 80, 300, right? It just creates this horrible image. Because remember, words matter less, matter less than how we picture those words functioning. When I tell that story from John chapter five, can you see why you've probably never heard a sermon on it? I hated the story. You should hate the story because it's frankly terrible. Until I went there. And this is when I realized that words matter less than how we picture words functioning and understanding the history underneath things is just as important as understanding the words we're reading. So I got, without boring you um, with all the details, I got invited to study for an entire week with a top history expert from the University of Jerusalem there. He teaches the PhD level um, candidates, academic ancient Near Eastern history. And he had listened to something I did. He rang me and said, I'd like to invite you to come speak to my 
messianic, he was a fully devoted follower of Jesus. He said, I'd like you to come speak to my messianic kibbutz, you know, it's my synagogue. And I was like, great. Um, what, what am I going to say to you? Like, you've forgotten more than I know. But anyway, I agreed to do it. And, and part of my payment was he, he agreed to study with me for three days. He said, I'll start as early in the morning as you want, and we'll go till as late at night as you want. That was the deal. And I was like, wow. So, um, so he, he, he blew my mind a couple of times, but by far, this was the one that got me. Now, he had a rule. If at any point, and he told me, he said, I'm boring. He said, I don't do tourist tours. I do academic tours. He said, so as long as you're okay with academia, we're going to be okay. But if you expect me to be real entertaining, you know, but I'm like, no, 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 let's, let's, let's study. So here's what happened. He said, you can stop me at any point and ask the question. I was like, no worries. So we're walking inside the Sheep Gate in Jerusalem, right? And the Pool of Bethesda is exactly where the Bible says it is, just inside the Sheep Gate in Jerusalem. So we come up to this pool, and this is exactly what he does. He went, yeah, 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 that's the Pool of Bethesda. And he starts to walk away. Well, I was confused because, again, words matter less than how we picture words functioning. When you've read the Pool of Bethesda story in your life, what did you picture? Like one, how big's the pool? And two, how deep is it? So I'll, I'll tell you my picture before I went there. I pictured the pool of Bethesda to be about the size of this room. And I pictured it to be about two feet deep. Like maybe as deep as the, as the stage. Why? Because crippled people are trying to jump in, right? You can't have crippled people jumping in a deep pool. It, it doesn't work. So he says, well, yeah, 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 yeah. That's the pool of Bethesda. I was expecting to see this. Uh-uh. Let me show you a picture of the Pool of Bethesda. This is unbelievable. Let me bring that. That's the Pool of Bethesda. Now, I know. Now, now, now the reason that picture is of such high quality is because I took it myself. It, um, everybody is trying to get a stranger's hand in the top left corner of their picture. I pulled that off, right? That's the, that's, that's the guy teaching me when I, once I stopped him. Just to give you some perspective here, um, that is 100 meters long, 35 meters wide, and 40 foot deep. Uh, just to, for a little bit of context, um, up in the top right corner, there is a bridge going across the Pool of Bethesda, and that is a grown man walking across that bridge. This is much bigger than even that picture is giving it uh, credit for. I got it like it's 100 meters long, 35 meters wide, 40 foot deep. It has a bridge across the pool of Bethesda. Now, he told me I could ask questions. What was my question? I said, well, hang on. Um, I just want to make sure I got my story straight. Is this the pool of Bethesda? Yep. John chapter five. Yep. Angel stirs the water. Yep. One person in gets healed. Nobody else does. Yep. How many people died here? He said, what? I'm not following. I said, well, follow me, right? So you, your legs don't work. So you're, you're sitting by the pool of Bethesda and somebody yells, angel stirring the water. And you're like, oh, right. And then you jump into that and you don't realize till you're in the pool that you're number two. You're so dead, bro. I said, how many people died here? He looked at me and said, you're joking. Everybody knows this which was a little daunting, right? Because follow my logic, right? If everybody knows something and I don't know it, that literally makes me the dumbest person on earth, right? In that, in, in that topic. I said, he said, you're joking. Everybody knows this. So I, I, first I played it off. I'm like, yeah, that's right. Yeah, like, yeah well, won't you let me in on what it is, everybody? <laughs> everybody knows. 
And he went, you don't know? I said, Ari, his name was Ari. I said, Ari, I don't know. I'm so embarrassed that you invited me to study at a PhD level and I don't even know something everybody knows. But I got to tell you, I don't know. And he said, oh, if you don't know, we have to talk about this. Because if you're thinking what I think you might be thinking, that would make God awful. I said, it is. It is. He asked me two questions. He said, number one, what religion was ruling Jerusalem when Jesus walked the earth? The answer, Roman Caesar worship. There was lots of gods everywhere, but everybody was under the authority of Caesar as Lord. He said, correct. Second question, he said, you didn't think the angel in John chapter five was the angel of our God, did you? I said, oh, well, it had, it had crossed my mind, you know? And he said, no way. He was shocked. He said, who would ever think that about the God revealed in Jesus? I said, I, I don't know, mostly Kiwis? I don't know. Like, like, like it's mostly the New Zealanders? I don't, I, I don't know. He goes, no, man. He said, Bethesda was a pagan place. Bethesda was the epicenter of the temple of the worship of the Greek god of healing, Serapis. So the, the, where I'm standing, if you could picture this photo, where I'm standing is on the ruins of the temple of Serapis. All I did was pick up my iPad and take a fit, picture, right? He said, what would happen though is this big pool would regularly overflow. And because it's at a higher point in the city, the water would flow down into the main city. And these are, this is, it create mud. And so the Romans said, no, 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 you got to fix your flooding problem. So what they did is they created a smaller pool. So here's what they did. If you could picture this, there was a temple for Serapis here. This was the big front yard for the temple of Serapis, this big, giant, beautiful pool. And then what they did is they ran tunnels underneath the temple of Serapis into a smaller pool there to act as a flood catchment, like a, a flood retardant. And, and so I, I took a picture of that. All I did was turn around and do this. Let me show you the next picture. So this was the, this is the, this is the pool I was thinking. This, this pool is the pool of Bethesda. It's uh, roughly the size of this room and it is roughly two or three foot deep. It, it was more in line with, with what I had pictured. And you could see the little holes in the columns and what they would do is when the big pool got too high, they would just pull a lever and move water into the smaller pool. Now, I want you to think about this. If there's two feet of water in the smaller pool, and they pull a lever no one else sees and the water goes underneath the temple into the flood catchment, what would happen to the water? It bubbles and stirs. So here's what would happen. The Roman governors said to the priest of Serapis, let's tell the people that's the angel stirring the water. And only the first person in gets healed and everybody else doesn't. And so people will pay us a premium to sit the closest to the pool. The priest of Serapis said, well, that's fine as, as long as you understand no one's gonna actually get healed. So here's what they did. The Romans used a plant and they would tell the plant when they were gonna move the water. And so what would happen is, is when they moved the water, by the time everybody looked around, the plant was already in the water and he came up out of the water healed, which only exacerbated the myth that this was working. This was Roman and Serapis oppression of the poor, the afflicted, the marginalized, and the sick. Now I can tell the story because Jesus comes into this epicenter of oppression of the poor, afflicted, and sick, and he does not pick a marginally sick person. He picks the sickest dude in the whole place. 38 years 
paralyzed, been sitting there 38 years. That's a long time. And, and if you remove the Jesus goggles, Jesus is sarcastic. Jesus is like, hey man, what's the matter? The water's not working for you? And the 38-year-old paralyzed guy goes, what are you talking about, Rabbi? You know the rules. Only the first one in gets healed, no one else. And that jerk with a sore throat, he keeps jumping in for anybody else. And I've been here 38 years and no one, he takes a number. I can't get in because my legs don't work. And then Jesus, without the help of stirred water, heals the man. Essentially, an in-your-face confidence. You can all sit here and be tricked and taken advantage of for the rest of your life. Or you can understand that the God revealed in Jesus does not charge people for healing. This was an in your, you'll, you, you could get killed for doing stuff like this. Confront, confronting oppression at that level. So the historian got done telling me the story I just told you, to which I asked him a follow-up question. Everybody knows this? Where'd you read that? He said, Shane, I'm in my 60s. I've never lived outside of Jerusalem. He said, this is the first time in my life I've ever considered someone didn't know that. He said, it's so obvious. I, didn't even, I don't even include it on my tours. I'm like, bro, you should, first of all, you probably should start including that one on the tour. I said, but seriously, like, like, where'd you learn? He said, Shane, just look around. And once he started pointing it out, there was like statues of Serapis that were broken apart. It was those ruins of this. And so I, I, see this picture where, see where that, 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 that shadow is at the bottom of that picture where it comes up? See how there's a yellow, uh, there's a yellow plaque there? Well, you can't read it. Uh, so I blew it up for you. Ch- check this out. Next slide. It, it says Temple of Serapis. It's on a plaque in the middle of the pool. Everybody knows this. <laughs> it gets worse. Next to the plaque was a billboard. <laughs> the billboard was the size of that wall. Let me show you the billboard. Next slide. So see at the top of the billboard, it says Bethesda. I had to cut the B off so I could fit it all in. It says Bethesda. And then right next to that, it says John chapter five, right? It's actually the billboard references the New Testament scripture. And then right there where his head is, again, people everywhere trying to get strangers' hair in there. I did it, right? He's t- what does that say where it says Pool of Bethesda? It says pagan medicinal baths. Pagan medicinal baths. It's on a plaque next to a billboard next to the pool. Everybody knows this. He asked me, he said, Shane, do you know how many pastors a year look at that billboard? I said, I don't know, 10,000? He said, exactly. He said, how did they never see that? It's a pagan medicinal baths. And I said, I don't know. He said, I guess if you start with your conclusion, you'll find what you're looking for, whether it's right there in front of you or not. I said, I I agree. Which leads me to this question. If we were wrong about Bethesda, Maybe we should open more conversations about God instead of shutting them down. Maybe there's a whole lot more to learn. Bethesda was an in-your-face confrontation to oppression. It wasn't just about someday. It's about God not being happy with that chaos, that oppression, that injustice right there. And we're going to bring salvation to it here, now, today. So great sermons are not meant to be agreed with nor disagreed with. They're meant to be wrestled with. So let's ask a few questions. Next slide. What is driving you that you need deliverance from? Not someday, 
but now? What is the name of the slave driver that reminds you I'm in charge? Before you go to bed at night, you will bet. Is it worry, anxiety, anger, depression? Is it fear of being broke? What, whatever the case, is it, is it an irrational fear for your health? What is, what is that thing that just reminds you you are less than human? What is the thing causing suffering? What's that person's name? What's that thing's name? This is about that. What, what are we doing to help free others from their slavery? Like, where are we participating in helping other people be set free? This is, this is the problem with when our evangelism strategy is just get people to say one prayer once so that they can go to heaven when they die, but then we leave them destitute or broke or in bondage. What is that? Salvation is about someday, but it's also about here, now, today. Let's say it this way. Next slide. Um, where do you need salvation for your house today? Not someday. Here now, today. So I bless you, my brothers and sisters of Arana Hills. May we not just see salvation as someday. May we embrace that, but may we also see it as an opportunity for the God revealed in Christ to engage in broken stories in order to make a better narrative here, now, today. I bless you to know that water is in fact turning red. There is, if you're in the land of suffering, there's a river called hope flowing somewhere in it. You just got to go find it. And if we're supposed to be the body of Christ in our world, part of being Christ in our world is finding oppression and making sure that we confront it here now today. May we not just have salvation. As the great prophet Isaiah said, it is but a light thing to have salvation, but I have called you to be my salvation to the ends of the earth. May we not just have salvation for us one day. May we be salvation here, now, today. I hope Jesus got bigger, the cross worked better, the resurrection is central, and scriptures got bigger, not smaller. I hope that you were inspired by tonight and know that there was no better way to spend an hour of your night than to learn what we lived, what we did tonight as we opened up scripture and we opened up the God revealed in Jesus. Because Christians are not called to believe in Jesus. They're called to see the world how Jesus saw the world. They're called to see God how Jesus saw God. And they're called to apply scripture how Jesus applied scripture. That Jesus isn't somebody simply to be believed in. Jesus is someone to fundamentally shape the way we see all things. May we be those people. Grace and peace, everybody. Thank you for joining us today. If you were encouraged by the message and would like to hear more sermons like this, make sure you hit subscribe. Follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. To experience other messages, videos, and live services, head to oranahills.church and navigate to the resources tab. Thanks for listening.